Now let's turn tonight in our Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 19. John chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 19. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. <coughs> then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed in them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and saith unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, Thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Amen. We know God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this evening is taken from John chapter 20 and verse 25. It says there, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But 
He said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the prints of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now my subject tonight is pondering the nails of the cross. I discovered that the Bible makes nine references to nails. The first being in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and in the verse 12 when God talked about uh, a woman paring her nails, probably to do with her hands, maybe even to do with her feet. And the last reference to nails in the Bible is actually John 20 and 25. I've discovered that eight of those references to nails are in the Old Testament. And there's only one in the New Testament. Only one reference, boys and girls, young people, to nails in the New Testament. And here it is. John 20, 25. And the word nails is mentioned twice. And of course, if we add the references in the Bible to the word nail individually, and the subject of nailing something, you would get a total then of 17 times. You see, this week I've been thinking about nails. The reason for that is on Thursday evening, I arrived at the car park uh, uh, outside what was the former Northern or Dankske Bank, and Miriam's car had a flat wheel. And when we took the wheel off, Sammy and I, or Sammy, then we discovered that there was a big nail in her car tyre. And yesterday morning on parade, uh, the heel of my shoe came off. I had new shoes to go on parade, and uh, Rosemary and I discussed it, and we decided, well, we're not wearing new shoes because they'll cut the feet off me. So I had my old shoes on, and the heel came off. And I could feel the prick of the nails coming up into my foot. At least I felt that I thought was the prick of the nails. And uh, we got some super glue, of course, and had to stick the heel back on in the bus in Tandergee. But I was thinking uh, how important nails are, uh, whether it's a nail in a tire or the little nails in her shoe. Nails really can't be done without. Sure they can't. They are useful. If you asked a carpenter or a joiner, uh, he's been fixing floor joists or ceiling joists or fixing skirting boards or laying a floor or architrave, well, he needs plenty of nails. He, he couldn't do it probably without some kind of nails. And then I asked myself, well, well, what can we think about nails uh, off the Bible? And I discovered these references, of course, uh, and then that brought me to this reference thinking about the nails of the cross. Do you know that recently in biblical archaeology, they have unearthed as far back as 2006 remains in Jerusalem of a young man that was allegedly crucified in the first century. And those remains included a heel bone pierced through by a large nail and the remnants of the nail were still there and it was bent. And the archaeologists, of course, pointed that as evidence to say at least there was a crucifixion in the first century in Jerusalem. 
And when examined, of course, the scholars maintained that the nail originally would have been at least seven inches long and probably a quarter inch thick made of iron. And, of course, they said there was further evidence not only of a crucifixion, but a Roman crucifixion, for it was the Romans that used nails uh, to nail their victims to a tree. We read in Luke twenty-three thirty-three, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Now, how did they do that? Well, they nailed him to the cross. That was one of the things that they did. And I want you to think tonight of the Lord Jesus on the cross. I want you to think of him hanging there naked in agony and blood. A spectacle for the world to behold. I want you to think of the rage and venom of some who were there watching him die. It's interesting that when you compare scripture with scripture in the book of Matthew, for example, in Matthew chapter 27, we read there of the Lord Jesus whenever people were standing round watching him die. This is what they said. Thou destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. See of thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. It says in verse 41, Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders. Think of their, their rage and their venom and hatred. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. They said he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Let's not just think of the physical pain and suffering of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Think of this mental anguish, this this taunting of him. And let's remember, he could have come down from the cross. He could have called, the Bible says, 12 legions of angels. He had the power, the right and the authority to come down from that tree if he wanted. But he didn't. He voluntarily chose to stay on the cross. He was nailed there, yes. And it's possible that they were seven inch nails. It's possible they were a quarter of inch thick. It was possible... That these were the very spikes that fastened him to the tree. He chose to stay there. Kneel there. For a reason. And I want us just to think tonight of the nails of the cross. Three nails I have in mind. Think of the nail of substitution. Way back in the 18th century in the history of the United States of America. In the state called Arizona. There was a young Indian man in a rage, fit of temper over some dispute. He slew a white man. The Indian man, of course, went on the run. There was a big manhunt for him. They couldn't find him. The general in the state of Arizona, uh, over the army, he was summoned to the governor's mansion. And he was told to hunt down this Indian man and make an example of him. He can't let this man get off with this crime. Because others will become fearful. And maybe other uh, people of the Indian tribe would rise up and start fighting with the white man all over again. So the general, on the orders of the state governor, was 
told, show no mercy, no leniency. What the general did was he met with the leaders of the tribe. He said he wanted this Indian man found and handed over. He said he had to be executed by a certain day. And if not, the war would be declared on the whole tribe. This was a war that the tribe in Arizona could not win. Now for days that tribe hunted for the young man, but they couldn't find him. They tried, they really tried, and tried again. They reported to the general that they couldn't find him. The general reminded them, he said, it's imperative that you do. Because if not, war is going to be declared in your tribe. So they tried again. Number of days, hunting parties sent out north, south, east and west. No success. The, the Indian man that had slew the white man somehow had disappeared, vanished, escaped. The tribal leaders met. They were in a dilemma. War is going to be declared in a few days. Our children, our women could be slaughtered. Our young men put to death. What are we going to do? Sitting beside the chief of the tribe was the chief's son. This is what he said. Father, kill me. Father, I will lay down my life for the people. That's a true story. story of love and sacrifice. And that's what they did. This chief's son was put to death. And war was averted. Now let me lift that up into the highest spiritual realm. Come with me to Calvary. Come with me up Golgotha's hill. Let's, let's ascend to the place of the skull. And let's think of the words. There they crucified him. The Lord Jesus, remember, died on the tree. You can think of him being kneeled there, kneeled in his hands, kneeled in his feet, possibly three kneels. And one of those kneels is the kneel of substitution, because the Lord Jesus died the death of a substitute. All of us were born sinners by nature and practice. Our sins merited the judgment of Almighty God, merited eternal death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin, of course, you're aware of, must be punished. God the Father didn't treat us as our sins deserve. God the Father planned a great plan of redemption. And central to that plan was he provided a substitute. And the Lord Jesus on the cross took our place. It says of him that he was numbered with the transgressors. It said of him that he bore the sin of many. You see, the guilt and punishment of our sin was imputed to Christ. He died in our place. And then the righteous life of Christ is imputed to all who believe in him. Is it any wonder Peter could talk about in First Peter 2 and 24 that he bare our sins in his own body in the tree. Remember Isaiah the prophet wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. When you think of the cross, let's remember that while it says Christ died, for the ungodly. Christ died because he offered up himself voluntarily as a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And on that cross he was a substitute for his people. On that cross he was a sin offering. On that cross he was there as a surety for us. The law had been broken. And he said to his father, 
I will not only fulfill the law on their behalf, but I will pay that penalty that the broken law demands for them. When we stand at the cross, we, we think of the physical suffering, and that's immense. None of I couldn't have words to describe that physical pain and agony. I, I don't know about you. I, I don't do any gardening. Rosemary does the gardening. If I was doing gardening and pricked by a thorn, do you know it would throb for days you would nearly want to go to the doctor? I, I can't stick pain. I don't think men can stick pain, and that's the truth. But you think of the physical pain. crown of thorns adorning his lovely brow remember, remember how he was scourged until his blood uh, was flowing from his veins and, uh, 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 and covering his frame so his visage was marred more than any man and then add to that this mental agony, this mental torture this taunting of him and then add to that the, the, the spiritual aspect of his death Remember the darkness, the gross darkness that, that, that shielded him from the gaze of man. And God's wrath against sin was poured out in Christ. The Bible tells us of Christ he was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. For then must he offered, for then, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. You see, his death on the cross was a death to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that word um, manifested to destroy means to to remove by carrying away, to, to remove by lifting. And how far did he carry our iniquities away? The Bible tells us in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. An immeasurable distance. Sin in the sea of God's forgetfulness. He says, thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. We sang there deliberately, pardon from an offended God. You've offended God by just being born a sinner. Pardon from sins of deepest dye. Pardon bestowed on what ground? Through Jesus' blood. It's not our good works. It's not our church attendance. It's not our clean living. It's not our neighborliness. It's not our honesty. Really in the sight of God, I believe they count for nothing when it comes to this question of salvation. It's through Jesus' blood. Blood that was shed in the cross because he bore the nail of substitution. The cross work of Christ. Christ making a propitiation, a covering for my sin and yours. So when you think of the nails, children, three nails that nailed in there, think of the nail of substitution. Think also of a second nail, the nail of satisfaction. Turn over there in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. One of those 17 references that I mentioned about nails in the Bible is found in Colossians 2 and verse 14. And what does it say there? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his 
cross. You see, I want you to understand tonight that there was a custom among the Jews that if you owed a debt to the creditors, and we all know what it is at times to be in debt to a creditor, that is you owe money to him, or you owe goods. And you don't have any money. Let's say it's a big debt of of a thousand pounds or or ten thousand pounds. And you don't have any money to pay the creditor. You're poor. And there was people like that in the first century. And there's people like that in the 21st century. Make no mistake about it. And the creditor being a rich man. Out of love. Out of mercy. Out of kindness. Forgives the man his debt. In other words, he he cancels it out. He says, well, the man's too poor to pay. So, what he did was, the creditor took a receipt of payment, paid in full, and he nailed it to the door of the debtor's house. So the debtor comes home, he looks at his door, he sees this receipt, the amount that was owed, And then the words in the handwriting of the creditor, paid in full. And that's exactly what um, the Apostle Paul is referring to whenever he talks about the cross of the Lord Jesus. Ordinances that was against us. That were contrary to us. What did the Lord Jesus do? He took it out of the way. How? He nailed it to the cross. In other words, he made not only a substitutionary work, but he made a a, a work of satisfaction. You see, whenever the debtor would come home and look at the receipt paid in full, he knew, he would know, he would never be called upon to pay the bill again. Now, every one of us owes a debt to God, a debt to the broken law. A debt to the justice of God. A debt to the holiness of God. We have broken his law. And the law required fulfillment. The law wanted to be perfectly kept. Sinlessly kept. We hold up our hands and say. But we never could be sinless. We could never keep the law sinlessly. And the law demanded fulfillment for being broken. And the penalty was death. And here's the Lord Jesus. Out of love for the souls of men. Out of grace and mercy. Love that brought him from the Father's side. Love that shut him up in Mary's womb. Love that, 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 that caused him to find refuge in the home of, of Mary and, and his stepfather Joseph. And became obedient unto them. Love that caused him to go about doing good. Love that caused him to climb the holy hill of Calvary. Love that caused him to die as a substitute in agony and blood. Love that fastened him to the tree. Here's the triumph of love. Here's the triumph of mercy and justice. The Bible says, Greater love had no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Think of the Indian chief's son. He laid down his life for his tribe. The Lord Jesus didn't lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for the ungodly. Romans 8 or 5 and 6 says Christ died for the ungodly he tells us again in chapter 5 and verse 8 but God commended his love toward us and while we were yet sinners Christ died for us there's not a tremendous statement died for us 
We were sinners. We were ungodly. We were without strength. We were enemies. That's our state and condition before God. Let's remember what John the Apostle said in 1 John chapter 4 and in the verse 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us. Because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the proof that Jesus rendered a perfect satisfaction to God is in the empty tomb. Let's remember tonight that Calvary was not an afterthought, not an accident, not a miscalculation, not something gone wrong. I reject those theories. Calvary was according to the plan of God from all eternity. Isn't that what the apostle um, uh, said in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden by it. It's absolutely tremendous to, to think um, that this was all part of the plan of God. He, he, he said in, uh, and, um, uh, in Acts chapter 4, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And over there in Second Timothy and um, uh, chapter 1 and the verse 90, uh, um, Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, whom he left to pastor the church, uh, sent him this instruction. Um, he, he, he said this to Timothy in chapter Second Timothy chapter 1 and in the verse 9, who have saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He was foreordained from the very foundation of the world. Now, now think of Calvary for a moment. Someone said this about salvation. That to come up with a plan of salvation, you needed to forge a key that could unlock the grave. You needed to build a lifeboat that could sail in the sea of fiery wrath. You would need it to construct a ladder that would reach to heaven. You needed to devise a plan that does satisfy the justice and holiness of God. You need to devise a plan whereby God could remain just and justify the ungodly. You needed to devise a plan to reconcile the mercy and justice of God. And that was a thought from Job chapter 9 and 2. How can a man be just with God? What's the solution? How is it possible? And you see... To, to, to think about that solution, you need a lot of wisdom. Because your eternal soul hangs in the balance. And if your wisdom and thinking and intellectualism is wrong, you'll not be saved and you'll miss heaven. And the truth is that amongst all of mankind, they couldn't devise a satisfactory plan. But God did. And God's plan involved 
The personal work of the Lord Jesus and Christ rendering a perfect satisfaction to God the Father. And the proof is the empty tomb. He is not here. He is risen. Let me tell you this. A young man went to university in America. And that young man uh, started out in university. He was doing, a, uh, I think, an engineering degree. And he sought out to have a good time to himself. He, he was seeking happiness among parties and, uh, and booze and all the rest of it. And then after a while he got fed up with that, disillusioned, and he started going to church. And uh, Having been in church for a while, he thought, well, I've given it a try. It's not really doing anything for me. He got a bit bored and fed up, and out the door of the church he went. He then later on gained leadership position in the university, and then sadly the glamour of that wore off, and uh, he, he moved off to other things. Uh, and in the time of leadership in university, he discovered that there was a Bible study going on in the university, and he found out the people involved. And he met them, and of course one of the people was a young girl. And being a young man, he took a liking and a shine to this young girl. And he asked her this, he said, Tell me, why do you go to Bible study? And she said, Jesus Christ. And he says, now don't give me that. I don't want to hear anything about the garbage of religion. Why are you doing this? You seem a happy, radiant person. You're a hard-working student. You're smiling all the time. You seem to be joyful. You're not dissatisfied. What's your reason? What's the key? And she just said again, Jesus Christ. And he started to talk to her about religion and she said, I never mentioned religion. You did. You brought it up. I have only one thing to say to you, Jesus Christ. And she said, I challenge you to refute and disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that young man went off and he set himself that task of study intellectually to, to disprove the resurrection of Christ. It's only a theory. It's not real. But you know, he couldn't. And he came back to that Bible study, and through time he came to faith in Christ. That young man's name later was Josh Medole, or was Josh Medole at the time. And he ended up writing a couple of books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, more evidence that demands a verdict. And he later testified, and stands to this day, that he couldn't intellectually explain away the doctrine of the empty tomb. You see, the nail of satisfaction is another important nail in the cross. Jesus not only died substitutionary, but his death satisfied God. His death found a way to reconcile the justice and the mercy of God. His death was central to God's plan to bring sinners to salvation, to render them sinless and bring them home to glory. What wisdom. One final nail, the nail of security. You know, in the book of Isaiah, out of those references to nails, the Bible talks about a nail in a sure place. Isaiah 22, verses 22 to 24. And we all have houses, and there's probably pictures on the wall. Here's some pictures here, and they're probably hung uh, with nails. I've been in other houses where there has been jugs and mugs of all sorts and descriptions uh, hanging about, not only in people's kitchens, but in people's bathrooms of all places. And they all seem firmly fixed. They seem secure. And I've thought of that. I'm thinking of one home in particular, remain nameless. 
There's loads of jugs of all sorts of descriptions, and they're all hanging firmly secure. And of course, you see, when we think of Christ, Christ is the nail in a sure place. Because he died on the cross to save us from sin. Not only its penalty, its power, its pleasure, and one day its presence. And from the moment he saves us, he keeps us. The Bible says we're, 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 we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And you think of nails that are wholly securing things. Pictures of different sizes. Mugs and jugs of different sizes. And they're all the same. They're all equally safe. We can apply that to the boys and girls who put their faith and trust in Christ. They're kept by the power of God just like the men and women. Just like the adults. I believe in the eternal preservation of every believer. The nails in the Bible mostly were made of lead or iron. The exception being those nails that were used in the uh, construction of Solomon's temple. They were made of gold. Did you know that? Second Chronicles chapter 3 verse 9. And God actually says to set the weight of the nails in gold. Now imagine that. I remember being at a building site, children on one occasion, and uh, walking through the building site with a big handful of four inch wire nails. And the man was shouting at me from a distance and I stopped to listen to what he was saying. And he says, you're dropping the nails. You're dropping the nails. I had a big handful of them and some were falling to the ground. And I was a young fellow. I wasn't really worried whether they were falling to the ground or not. And he said to me, if you were paying for them, you'd know about it. But here's God. And he says to Solomon, when you're building the temple, I want you to use golden nails. And I'm giving you the actual weight of the nails that you're to use. Not only individually, but collectively. Now think of that. The nails were considered important enough by God to weigh. In other words, they were highly valuable. They were useful to God. They were important. And do you know you're important enough, not only for God to save you, but you're important enough for God to cause you to be useful in a service. And they're important enough for you to be sanctified and set apart from the world. Let me finish tonight. There was a wee fellow who went to school one time. And he said to the teacher about the school. <coughs> and he said, what's the boys and girls like in this school? And she opened her drawer and she produced a hammer. And she produced some nails. And she says, well, in this school there's some pullers. They're like the hammer. They're positive. They're helpful. They're obedient. And there's others. And they're like the hammer and the nails. They're knockers. And she says, now, son, what do you want to be? A knocker or a puller. And is not a picture of life in the church, in our school, in our work. We can be knockers. We can be like the hammer that hammers the nail home. And we have nothing good to say. And we talk ill of other people. Reminds me of the wee boy that used to say in the home to his sisters, I hate you, I don't love you anymore. I'm not your friend. 
every time he lost his temper and said that, the father took him out and made him nail a few nails into the fence. And very soon he discovered there was dozens of nails nailed into the fence. And the father said to him, son, you'll have to deal with your temper because you're a knocker. And over time he did repent of his temper. And you know he became a puller? For he went and he pulled every nail out. And whenever he pulled every nail out, then his father took him back to the fence and said, son, look at all the holes in the fence. You see the scars and the marks that the nails have made? That's the effect of sin in our lives. And Jesus died not only to save us, but to sanctify us so we could be useful in his service. The nail of security. The three nails that were in my mind on the cross. I trust that the Lord will bless the nails of Calvary. As you think about them to our hearts this evening. Now we're just going to sing in closing. We'll sing one verse of 